0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. On Tuesday, I listened to an interview with Congressman Scott Franklin, and he was speaking about the uh, tragedy occurring today in Afghanistan. He had served as a Navy commander, and so was one of those who had made promises to the Afghan peoples and to their um, military and Uh, And so he was able to speak, I think, from experience about what it means uh, when we make promises and then don't hold up to those promises. And his statement, I think, that was uh, made with great conviction was that for generations uh, we will suffer because of our lack of commitment to the promises that we made, especially to the interpreters in Afghanistan uh, that we made promises to and were left behind. This is a tragedy, I think, again, that Congressman Franklin spoke of that will affect us for generations. And it immediately made me think of the promises that the nation of Israel made before Joshua and their God before entering into the promised land. And I think it's uh, very important that we have uh, real world, real life day-to-day examples of the kind of promises that we are to make to one another and how it is that we're supposed to hold and understand our word when we make it. You'll remember that Joshua is uh, coming just after Moses, that he was with Moses uh, as they left Egypt, that he was one of the 12 spies that goes up into the promised land, and he and Caleb are the only ones of the two spies that come in and say, yes, the people are big, Yes, the cities are fortified, but God is with us. And so we have uh, no choice but to be obedient to the Lord and to take it, uh, no matter what the risk, no matter what the cost may be. While the other spies said, it's too big, it's too hard, and we can't do it. And the Lord said, you won't enter the promised land. And only Caleb and Joshua, out of all of that generation entered. Aaron doesn't, Miriam doesn't, Moses doesn't. Only Caleb and Joshua, who were willing to stand by the promises of the Lord with courage and with fortitude, are allowed to enter in. And so now we see them standing uh, in the promised land at Shechem. Shechem is in that territory reserved for Ephraim. It's a little bit north of Jerusalem. It's very important that they stop in Shechem because this is where Abram goes down from Haran. You remember that Abram follows the Fertile Crescent. Remember, he's in modern-day Iraq near Baghdad and Ur. He goes up into modern-day Syria to Haran, and then he goes down into the Promised Land, and he stops at Shechem. And it's at Shechem that the Lord says, this is the land that I'm going to give you. All the promises before had been about a land. Now we are in the land, and the Lord says, look around, this is it. And this is where Joshua stops with the people and said, this is the land that the Lord promised to you. He is going to be faithful. The question is, will you be faithful? And of course the people say, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, we're, we're going to do that. And Joshua asks them again. He says, uh, it's going to be hard, right? He says, choose this day with sincerity and with faithfulness. I really love that word, sincerity sincerity is about integrity it means that my uh, heart says what my mind says what my intention is and everything in me says that I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to say it to you. I'm going to say it to you. I'm going to say it in season and out of season. I'm going to say it in mixed company and polite company. I'm going to say it inside of the church and outside of the church. This is what I say I am. This is what I say I'm going to do. That's what it means to have sincerity. I don't tell one person one thing and another person another. I say it with conviction, with purpose, with understanding about what the cost is. And I've laid it all out and I've decided that this is who I am and what I'm going to do and Joshua says this is the way this decision has to be made you can't be saying it now because of the people that you're with you can't be saying it because you've looked around and decided this guy looks strong I think he can help me do it we're saying that we're going to do it no matter what the cost this is who it is that I am and what the Lord has called me to do and then Joshua tells them another really wonderful truth that we've heard over and over again he says you can't do it Is one of my favorite things to preach, I think, maybe if you've been here for a year or more. Right? Joshua says, You're not able to do this. He says, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He's holy. In other words, He's holy, and you're not. And what He's calling you to do is to be a holy people, and you're not that. But He says, If you decide to be obedient, if, that wonderful theological word, if, If you forsake the Lord, He will turn from you. And you won't get forgiveness. And this should be the kind of verse that just kind of shocks us and wakes us up. And and we say, but I thought the Lord forgave everybody. I thought there was forgiveness offered for everyone. Yes, all those who turn to the Lord in humility. Right? Forgiveness means that I've repented. Repentance means I've acknowledged my sin before God. And acknowledged that I need forgiveness. I can't do that if I've rejected God. Who am I getting forgiveness from? So if I understand that God is holy and I am not, if I'm saying I'm going to turn to the Lord and reject these pagan gods, then forgiveness is available to me. But if I reject the Lord and I reject His ways, I'm not able to repent or to receive forgiveness. So Joshua lays out clearly for the people and he tells them to incline their hearts which we have some tools for doing. We can incline our hearts. We incline our hearts by uh, understanding, as St. Paul says, how we're going to spend our time. We have to budget our time, just like we have to budget our money, right? All, uh, all the time uh, that I've been serving in the church and for many years, um, I read lots of things about how to encourage people to be generous and giving. And, and I finally came to the point where I realized... My people are generous. All the Christians I've ever met are generous people. That's not the issue. The issue isn't generosity. The issue is they're horrible with their money. The Christians that I know are generous, but they don't know where their money is going. They don't know what they've spent it on. They don't know how much they've got. And so how can they be generous in a disciplined way if they're not disciplined about their money at all? so we turned to financial peace and other tools to help us to get a handle on our money to be disciplined about the way that we used it so that we could incline our hearts towards the generosity that was already there the budgeting of time is no different we have to budget our time when we talk to people about reading our bibles every day about saying morning prayer about spending time alone with the lord about uh, seeking his counsel this is all about time management isn't it Because we get to the end of the day and we think, oh, I never asked the Lord about that. I made all kinds of really important decisions in my life and I never asked the one who knows everything. I talked to a bunch of people at work that know a little bit about nothing and I never asked my master who knows a lot about everything. Who knows everything about everything. Why? Because we don't know that God knows? No, because we never budgeted our time. We never set the time aside to wait upon the Lord. So that's where uh, we have to have, as uh, Joshua says, uh, the inclination of our hearts. The inclination of our hearts. And of course, it's the Lord who changes hearts. He's the one that changes it. But we have a job to do. We have a job to do in inclining our hearts because if we're budgeting our time and we're spending it with all kinds of media consumption, with all kinds of games and foolishness, and with all kinds of activities and people that are leading us away from the Lord, that's what's going to happen. We will be led away from the Lord. But if we budget our time and our interests towards things that are of God, we'll find our hearts inclined that way. It's very simple. And this is the simplicity that Jesus lays before uh, his disciples and all those that will listen to him about this truth of his um, body and blood in this this dialogue that we call the bread of life. You remember that we started uh, four weeks ago reading in John's gospel here in chapter 6 about the bread of life. And this whole discourse is a time that Jesus spends to really go in depth about what this means to eat his body and to drink his blood. You remember that we were paralleling with uh, Mark chapter 6 and we'll be going to chapter 7 next week in Mark. This is the end of these four weeks that we really spend uh, with the Lord digging down into what this means that he is. The bread of life and he comes to the end of that dialogue and he's come to the end of telling them uh, that his body is food indeed and that his blood is is drink indeed and then we see what the response to that is when they heard it they said that's hard (laughs) don't you love that more of us I think should say that when we really state what it is that we're doing in Holy Communion we should be saying whoa that's really hard How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to participate in this? How am I supposed to understand that this bread and this wine is his flesh and blood? And sadly, the churches spend centuries trying to dismiss it one way or the other. We've either tried to rationalize it with Aristotelian categories, or we've tried to make it a metaphor and saying it's a symbol, it's like this. He really meant it's like blood. He didn't say that if he had said that that wouldn't have been hard if he had said it's like that they would have said oh no big deal i can get into symbols they were totally familiar the jews were with symbols that wouldn't have been hard there would have been no reason to leave and he didn't go into aristotelian categories to try to explain it away he allowed it to be hard and he allowed the people to leave how quick we are to say oh wait 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 a minute Wait a minute, let me make it easy for you. Let me just explain it away. It's not a big deal. Jesus doesn't do that. He said, it is a big deal. It is hard. And the only way that we'll be able to participate in eating his body and drinking his blood is by obedience. That's it. Jesus says, are you going to go away? The question here is the same one that was put to the people by Joshua are you going to do it, or aren't you? He doesn't say, don't worry about it, it's going to be easy. Joshua doesn't say that, because guess what? It wasn't. It wasn't easy. There were sacrifices and dangers. So Jesus, like Joshua, says, are you going to do it, or aren't you? And the disciples say, where else are we going to go? What else is there? What other option do we have? In other words, either we submit to the God of Israel or we submit to pagan gods and there is no forgiveness to be had. What choice do we have? And what St. Paul is doing for us here in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is explaining to us uh, the, the value and the importance of obedience. The value and importance of obedience. Because as Christians, we don't believe in order to be obedient. Sometimes we've like to do that, especially in the modern era, right? In the Enlightenment era. It's all about, let me get a really firm grasp about this, and then I'll decide if I'm going to do it or not. Well, guess what? We can't understand. We'll never get to the bottom of God and His ways. And if we wait until we have a firm and complete understanding, we will never have done anything. Instead, we are obedient in order to believe. When we're obedient, we come into belief. I don't know about you, but every person that I've ever met that has a deep and abiding, a rich faith is somebody that started with obedience. And then they were able to tell me, out of my obedience came a deeper understanding and faith. I didn't get it, but I did it anyways. And St. Paul is teaching the people of God how to be obedient first. And you notice that he starts with the most important relationships, right? He starts with husbands and wives and children. Because this is where the church starts. This is where the church is founded. Between husband and wife and between parent and child. And that whole relationship is based on obedience. It's about submitting to one another. We have to submit to one another in love. And the way that we do that is by first submitting to God. Do you see how he puts the Lord in the middle of every relationship? He says, if you want to be a good husband, understand how Christ sacrificed for his church. If you want to be a good wife, understand how the church is supposed to love and respect Christ. So Jesus stands in the middle of our marriages and we're supposed to understand our commitments as husbands and wives our responsibilities as we understand the relationship between Christ and his church this is why marriage is so essentially important for Christians because in fact we can't understand how to be Christians if we don't understand how to be married and vice versa they're hand in hand and so Jesus says we stand in the middle this is a really dangerous chapter to me to read especially as husbands right Love your wife the way Christ loved his church? Gulp. To sacrifice ourselves? Anybody thinking about getting married or anybody who's in a marriage right now has to think long and hard about that one. That is the way that we're supposed to start the Christian marriage relationship is as a husband, we're supposed to say, I will die for you the way that Christ died for his church in love. And then he does the same thing for parents and children. He says, if you want to understand how to be a good parent, understand how God loves his church. How is God a father? And as children, we have to understand how we're supposed to respond to God. So he stands in the middle of the parent-child relationship. And even radically, he stands in the middle of the slave-master relationship which some people would say, oh, this is a tragedy of Christianity, that we didn't immediately wipe out slavery. Slavery was known from the very beginning of mankind. It's still here with us today, sadly. But you can see the transformation that Christians have made to this institution, first and foremost in these words of St. Paul here. What does he say? He says that if you're a slave, you don't serve your master, you serve Christ. And if you're a master you have to be obedient to christ because he's your master and treat those whom you have as christ has treated you in other words with gentleness and with forgiveness so he breaks that relationship of slave and master and he puts himself in the middle of it and he says you have to first be obedient to me in love And this is true for us in the workplace. It's true for us in every other relationship. That we have to understand how it is that we relate to God first and how it is that he has sacrificed for us, for us to understand how to relate to one another. So what do we do? You can only avoid reading the newspaper for so long. You can only turn off the television news for so long before you hear about the tragedies around the world, how are we supposed to deal with that? By living here first. We have a responsibility here to one another, to be obedient to one another, and to hold our word as bond. If we want to expect our politicians or our political leaders, and if we want to pray for them, that they hold their word as the bond of the american people we can only start with that here first so as people of jesus the good shepherd we first have to understand that we are committed to one another that we are here to honor the commitments that we have made the promises that we have made the relationship that we have entered into and that we have to be obedient to one another and as saint paul says we have to what make the best use of the time that's been given to us greeting one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We don't greet each other with the horrors of the day. We greet each other with beautiful hymns and spiritual songs. We're supposed to be making melody to the Lord in our hearts. We're not supposed to be subsumed with with the gravity or the distress of the situation, but we're supposed to, to grab a hold of the Lord and sing and make melody and give thanks always give thanks always. No matter what the headline, no matter what anybody else says, no matter what the condition of the world, we give thanks always for what he has done for us. May we give thanks always and greet each other with songs and spiritual songs.